Thirteen years after the start of the global financial crisis, many of the same excesses that caused it can be seen today, in many cases by the exact same players. Wall Street is fat with corporate profits again, and governments are flooding the world with oceans of debt. Speculation is back with a vengeance, and regulators seem asleep at the wheel. Will history repeat here? Are we setting the stage for another worldwide financial crisis? To answer that, we've invited award-winning financial journalist Matt Tybee to address this very topic for us at the recent Wealthion conference held in early June. And we're now making Matt's excellent interview available to you now. But just to prepare you, he is indeed hearing very loud echoes of 2008. The shenanigans just move wherever nobody's watching, and there are just lots of places where nobody's watching, and that's that's a big worry. All right, I am super excited for this next session of the, the conference here. Uh, this is one of my all-time favorite uh, heroes of journalism, really, to be honest. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Matt Tybee. Uh, Matt's an American author. He's a National Magazine award-winning journalist and podcaster. He's well-known for his keenly researched and fearless reporting on finance, media, politics, and sports, and he's forever endeared himself to the wealthy and audience by the heroic work he did covering the financial institutions whose greed and abuses led up to the great financial crisis. Uh, Matt has recently gone independent, now publishing his work on Substack, though he remains a contributing editor to Rolling Stone. Matt, thanks so much for joining us again. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's such a pleasure. Um, look, when, when I last talked to you, which was about six months ago or so, we focused on the growing editorial restrictions that are kind of metastasizing throughout journalism today. Uh, hard truths are increasingly squelched by narrative agendas, uh, corporate profits, and cultural wokeism, for lack of a better word. Um, the media seems to be becoming more the servant of special interests instead of the mirror of truth that's supposed to keep them in check. Um, so when we talked about six months ago to now, um, has anything changed? Are things getting better or worse in your opinion? Well, I think there's a bunch of different issues there uh, in terms of, I don't know if you want to call it cultural wokeism or uh, just the sort of unanimity on uh, social issues. I, I think there's that issue has gotten more acute in the last six months or so. I um, mean, I think if you look around newsrooms around the country, we, we've seen uh, a number of um, controversies uh, at different organizations, you know, ranging from 17 Magazine to the New York Times, where basically we see the same situation playing out over and over again. You have somebody who falls out of favor, um, maybe some incident from his or her past comes to the forefront and there's a demand from uh, employees essentially uh, that uh, that person be uh, gotten rid of. And uh, that's, you know, that's happening not, not just at, uh, at news organizations, but at companies like Apple. And, uh, but but with that, within the news business, we, we see a lot of that. And it's, I think it affects coverage significantly because there's a, um, an unwillingness and a hesitancy to, to even broach certain topics uh, for fear that um, you might get the rest of the newsroom looking in your direction. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, a serious problem. 
Um, yeah, and I, I presume this sort of cancel culture, you know, um, makes it even uh, harder for, uh, you know, the hard truths to come out where, where some editor is afraid that, uh, you know, they might be calling for his head if, if, if he lets the paper publish something that's not quite on the, the you know, the approved list du jour, you know, of, of the cultural crowd. Right. And, and sorry to interrupt. And it, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be like a cultural issue like we see you know we see recently with the the lab leak story and again i i have no opinion about you know what what the origins of covid-19 were particularly but the, it's it's an extraordinary story from, from a journalism perspective that the, the fact checking organizations are essentially walking back their pronouncements from the last year about you know the viability of that hypothesis and what it what it, and what it tells you is that the basically the entire business for most of the last year was afraid to go near that subject because uh, it, you know once once there's kind of a consensus within a newsroom now people just don't don't go against it and I, I think that's that's not the way the business is supposed to work. Um, and you know so you and I spent a lot of time d digging into the reasons for that in, in our previous interviews. So I'm not going to rehash them here. And if folks want to go watch that, uh, it, it's easily found just by Googling, uh, you know, Matt Tybee, Adam Taggart on, on YouTube. Um, but uh, uh, what I want to dig into you with, uh, on this discussion, Matt, is um, so, you know, if, if we can sort of take as a granted here that the truth is getting compromised in the media, um, I, I want to actually dig into the, the, the work that you did um, that you do, but, but you did such a great job coming out of the great financial crisis. Um, you know, as I said in, in the intro, um, you, you know, did a great job in revealing the greed and fraud that was perpetrated by many of the financial institutions that had a direct hand in creating the great financial crisis. Um, and yet those guys got bailed out. And then in, in later years, you know, afterwards, um, they vastly benefited from the subsequent policy changes, you know, that had been made to kind of, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, so anyways, here we are, you know, over 10 years later, kind of back in the same place where speculation, you know, right before the great financial crisis, where speculation is running rampant in the markets. Uh, there's massive stimulus, massive capital flowing into Wall Street's coffers, uh, and the country's richest are getting richer at a head spinning rate, while the bottom 99% are increasingly left behind. So uh, if I can, I, I, I want to kind of, you know, uh, pick your, your expertise here in the financial sphere. Um, and let me start with sort of an incendiary question, which is, uh, given everything I just rattled off that's happened since the great financial crisis, did the villains win in this story? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a safe, safe uh, statement to make. Um, the great theme of a lot of the work that I, that I did for the better part of 10 years was that the a lot of the actors who were probably the most guilty and amping up the uh, leverage and risk levels before 2008, uh, putting so many toxic uh, uh, derivatives and um, you know so, so much risk into, into the uh, system, creating all those losses. Um, there was a ton of fraud uh, in the markets uh, that was attributable to a lot of these companies directly. They all not only got away with it and went unpunished, but they almost all got bailed out. Uh, and not only that, some of the problems that were um, 
that were con big contributors to the 2008 issue, like the sort of growing concentration of capital, those were, were worsened by the bailout response when we took a lot of these companies and rather than chopping them up and selling them off into, into parts, we merged them together through a state-aided process and we made even bigger uh, too big to fail companies that are now more systemically important than they were before. It's more difficult to prosecute them if they do something wrong. Um, they, they, they essentially live outside the, the sphere of normal regulation. Uh, and we've seen you know, sort of progressively over the years that it's just incredibly difficult to, to audit or regulate these firms, whether it's the London whale episode, the, the public just doesn't have a good handle on what's going on uh, within these giant companies. And now you mentioned again, that there are a lot of similarities to, to the 2008 scenario. And you're absolutely right. We, we've just had another gigantic uh, bailout uh, essentially, but you know, that started with the CARES Act last year. And there's a ton of capital flowing into the markets from, from the Fed. Uh, it's propping the whole thing up. The banks just had an amazing year uh, underwriting a, a lot of a lot of that rescue money. Um, you know, a lot a lot of the new debt issuance for for the companies that are taking advantage of the the Fed rescue programs. Um, they had fantastic years. They had the best years they had since 2009. Uh, and so, yeah, we're right back in that place again, where once again there there was. There was all this instability in the markets, and it's and it's been rewarded by a kind of a bailout scenario. And it, and this time, it, I, I think they're conceiving it as as kind of a permanent bailout, essentially, which is um, which is unsettling to say the least. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to speculate here, so you know, don't don't worry if the answer is I have no idea. But um, is is the fact that it seems like you know. The policy changes that get set always sort of seem to benefit the banks here at the end of the day. Is that more incompetence on behalf of the legislatures that are passing this? They just don't realize the consequences of, of their actions? Or is it more orchestrated? You know, are the banks kind of behind the scenes pulling the strings and, and getting the laws written and the regulations that they want set created? I think it's a combination of both, actually, because certainly there there are plenty of people in, uh, in the Senate and in the Congress who work in the relevant committees who know exactly what's going on, who know exactly who's going to benefit, um, you know, th through uh, legis legislation like the CARES Act. But there are others who would normally, I, I would think, be critics of Wall Street who don't really pick up on certain things. They don't pick up on the sort of secondary benefits of some of these programs. Just for instance, again, I just mentioned the the underwriting of all that new debt. You know, a hundred billion dollars in fees uh, that the banks uh, racked up <laughs> racked up last year. Right, yeah, it's just easy money for them. Yeah, exactly. It's it's free money. It's it's essentially part of the bailout. And I, I think there are a lot of people on Wall Street. Like if you went if you went to the the people who you would normally think of as the biggest congressional critics on Wall Street. There's probably not a staffer um, who works for most of those people who's going to be able to understand how that works, right? Like, like the, 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 the way that 
the, the various ways that these companies are able to take advantage of the money flows in a situation like this, um, you know, un unless they're really easy to understand, they kind of go over the heads of Congress. There are a few who do get it, and, that, and they're the ones who are making the decisions. But for the most part, I think it's it's not something that the that the the politicians really get. Okay, you know, it's interesting. I, I feel um, when criticism I sort of have of the American public is that we've sort of abdicated uh, all. Uh, authority over anything related to economics to a small group of people because we've just sort of been convinced or tell ourselves math is hard let me let the smart figure right. figure it out uh, but it's really right. not that hard and it's something that has a huge impact on our lives and we should be more engaged in it and it sort of sounds like what you're saying is a lot of the people in government particularly kind of in the rank and file they've got the same issue right they're just kind of going through the motions doing their one little piece they don't really understand fully what's happening downstream I see you nodding. Um, question for you about the few people at the high levels that you think do get it and who do really in, in influence policy decisions. Uh, are, are they are they just are they captured by the banks? So like, are they in the pockets of the banks? Um, I know that's kind of a harsh accusation, but well, look, it's not it's, for harshness. It's it's not hard to take a look. You can you can go to OpenSecrets.com and see who's getting most of the the financial services money, and you can see how those people vote on on key issues, and you can see how, especially the tri-state area delegation votes on on most important issues that have to do with Wall Street regulation or uh, have to do with bailouts. Um, you know, have to do with watering down Dodd Frank. Have to do with making sure that the you know, that there isn't a, a true return to Glass-Steagall or, or whatever it is. You know, again, it's not a mystery. You can just, you can look at who's getting the money and then you can look at how they're voting. And uh, it's a pretty obvious connection in, in most cases. Uh, the people who are not taking the money, um, and there are not many of them, but they're the people who tend to be the ones who are pushing for things like, I don't know, the audit of the Fed, right? Like, you know, where was that coming from? That was coming from Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul, uh, because who else is going to do that? You know, again, this is not a terribly complicated story. In Washington, most, most stories end up coming down to issues of money. Uh, it, you know, whoever is paying for the, 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 the politicians to run their campaigns. They're the ones who are going to get the policy priority and the easiest source of cash to, to run political campaigns is the financial, sorry, the financial services industry uh, or the weapons makers, but, but particularly financial services. And so they get what they want. I mean, I remember when I covered Dodd-Frank, uh, I had to go, I had an interview with a, one of the senators and there were so many bank lobbyists in the guy's waiting room that there was no place for me to sit. Uh, like it was <laughs> like stand, standing room only. Um, so, you know, and there's nobody on the other side, you know, lobbying on, on you know, on, on these issues. It's, it's, there's just tons and tons of money. And so the money gets what it wants. Yeah, which, you know, makes sense. Just so depressing to hear, especially coming out of the mouth of, of a guy like you, who's you know, kind of, you know, been in the halls of power uh, doing investigative work. Um, I mean, we could talk about this, I think, for hours, but um, the, the last point I'll make on it before I, I get to the true question I want to be asking you here is I, I, I remember listening to a, a podcast that was done, uh, by, I think it was by Planet Money or 
This American Life or it was on NPR, but, but basically it was trying to understand sort of how lobbying works because we all have this vision of these lobbyists there with their bags of money that are lying in wait to try to influence a politician. And they found that, that the day in the life of the average lobbyist is actually the exact reverse where they're being hounded by the politicians who exactly. want their money, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And when you, they, they kind of really could have broke down the day of the average politician on Capitol Hill and the amount of hours that they spend fundraising versus actually like getting educated about bills and, and legislating, um, you know, their day is, is almost consumed by the fundraising part of it, but it just underscores your part that money sort of drives everything down there. And especially in the house, as soon as you get elected, you got to start running again. And so it's, uh, you know, for the, for the people who, who are in the house and don't have a safe district, they're That's basically what they do for a living. They're raising money. You know, so yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's 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 a hard reality, and it sucks. But I guess it is what it is. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So look, I know that you are not an economist or a financial analyst by trade, even though you're very well educated. Um, do you fear that, given that we're sort of back to where we were, the excesses that we were back to where we were before, um, and, and we sort of we're, we're in another sort of banks gone wild, you know, type uh, environment? Uh, do you fear that, that we risk another systemic breakdown um, from today's excesses? You know, as, as we look in the markets, we see all the speculation. We see prices at, at record levels of valuation. You, you and I can go down a long list here. Uh, how concerned are you that, that we are sort of dancing around the precipice of another big systemic breakdown? Yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned. I, uh, you know, I've done, uh, I've started going back and doing some of this the, the same kind of work that I was doing in 2008. Um, I covered stories like Greensill and Archegos, uh, you know, some of the other uh, scandals that have popped up recently. Uh, you know, I did a little bit of the GameStop stuff, but the, 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 the thing that's scary about the current situation is you, you can go back and look at almost any graph of any market or you just look at the N the nyse index and you see at march 20th it's going it's plummeting and then it starts climbing back up again and that's a hundred percent the fed right uh, and we we know that at, at the time the fed uh chair was saying things like we're not going to run out of ammunition so it's encouraged this uh you know, a, a tremendous amount of speculation. Uh, you know, there, there's this frothiness to the market that that has everybody uh, excited. But the reality is, you know, we have all these zombie companies that are essentially can barely make their own um, debt service. That's a, a fair portion of the American economy is is barely subsisting, right? So, so any interruption in their ability to to get um, to get liquidity would would be a catastrophe and fatal again it would be fatal them. right yeah again and, and again looking at that graph all it would take would be an alteration in the policy uh and we'd be right back at, at march 20th 2020 again and what would that mean so that that makes me nervous on the one hand then the other thing that makes me nervous is Again, with with stories like the Archegos debacle, what you see is is that sort of regulatory uh, attention is almost completely absent. Um, it, it, it's it's again similar to what was happening in two thousand and eight when you 
when afterwards they did the kind of forensic examinations of what was happening at places like Bear Stearns. And we found out that, uh, you know, the, the regulators, bear, even when they were shown pretty good evidence that, the, uh, I'm sorry, not Bear, Lehman, uh, when they had a, they had some data, they had, they had indications that there was a serious mess going on at that company um, at, at least six to eight months before the, the end. And they didn't really do anything about it because th there just isn't a mechanism that, um, that really works uh, in, in terms of making sure that there aren't massive irresponsible levels of risk in the economy. Uh, and we, we, we saw with a bunch of these recent episodes that yet the same kinds of behaviors are happening again. And there's really nobody watching. There's, there's nobody um, uh, who's stepping in and, and kind of telling these, these companies that they, they, they can't do this kind of stuff. Uh, and that makes me nervous because it, it just feels so much like the same scenario that, that, um, that led up to, you know, August and September of 2008. And again, so depressing to hear. And, and I think what's kind of, you know, sort of nefarious about that is, is what the American public has sort of been sold is, hey, 2008 is not going to happen again because we, yeah, we let things get out of control, but then we passed a lot of really like strict regulation and rules and, right. uh, they're gonna, and, and it just seems like, you know, so it's almost like Epstein's guards, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Regulators have just been sent on a you know, permanent coffee break, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like, there, there, there isn't significant evidence that the, that, that any of that behavior is, has really gone away. It's just moved into different markets. I mean, it's, it's maybe not in mortgage-backed securities anymore, but they, you know, it's something else. It's CLOs or it's private equity deals or, or uh, you know, it's total return swaps or, or whatever it is. It's just there's the shenanigans just move wherever nobody's watching. And there are just lots of places where nobody's watching. And, that, and that's, that's a big worry. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think your question's on point. Well, thanks. Well, let me ask you this. So for me personally, I created Wealthion to help regular people become better informed um, because so many are unaware of how the system actually works. And we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, we're not taught it in school uh, and our leaders and our media, you know, they just encourage the public to trust the experts, right? That the system's being well run. And, you know, when you look on the, the after effects, you know, where people are, um, you know, they're, they're getting pushed out the risk curve, right? They're being encouraged to speculate in dangerous ways um, because they're getting penalties on saving, right? And wages aren't growing nearly fast enough. Um, and all the while in the background, the wealth gap just keeps accelerating. Um, this whole thing just feels really deeply unfair to me, right? It feels like the system is, you know, A, captured by a very few, um, and B, everybody else is kind of basically being distracted and, and possibly sort of even lied to. Um, and so I just want to try to help laying the playing field a little bit by just arming people with, you know, with, with better information and understanding of what's going on so that they can then make more educated and informed decisions about how to protect and perhaps grow their own wealth. Is your work driven by a, a similar desire to, to educate the little guy with knowledge like that? And, and if it's not, it's fine. But I'd be curious to know what does drive it if it's, if it's something else. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I got I got involved in this topic 
sort of by accident because after after Barack Obama got elected in 2008, we had an editorial meeting at Rolling Stone because the the financial crisis had already happened by then, and we decided that it would it would be a good idea just to do one story uh, so that our audience, which um, includes you know sort of young college kids, but at the time this was Rolling Stone. Uh, and sort of aging baby boomers who like classic rock, but it's not a financial audience. We figured let's do one story that kind of just helps people understand the basics of what happened in 2008. And so I, I did one story about AIG, uh, which in, basically included um, trying to explain what credit default insurance was to uh, an ordinary person. And the response we got from that was so overwhelming because basically that service didn't exist at the time. There, there, there was no um, press that covered the financial world for non-financial people, right? So, so even though uh, the entire world is dependent upon the, the financial services uh, industry and we, we all interact with it and in, in sometimes in sort of deeply intimate and important ways, there's nobody explaining it to you um, how it works. Uh, you know, you can pick up the Financial Times or you can pick up the Wall Street Journal. And um, but most of those articles are written for people who who understand the industry. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 almost like, uh, you know, back in the day when the Bible was only written in Latin, uh, it, it, financial language is, is designed um, in a way to keep the ordinary person out. It's, it's intentionally obscure. It's intentionally boring, uh, and impenetrable and dense. And, um, and so, you know, I viewed what I did for a long time is essentially like a translation job. It's, it, I, I wasn't doing anything, you know, that was particularly revolutionary. All I was doing was saying, okay, well, in this particular instance, um, you know, like, you know, the HSBC case, the money laundering case, uh, here's what that story would read like if they were writing it for somebody, you know, who didn't understand finance or didn't understand what, how money laundering worked or whatever it was. And um, I, I think that situation has improved since 2008 through, you know, podcasts like yours. There's, there, there's a, there are many more tools online uh, for people to uh, get access to the kinds of information that was once only available to financial insiders. In fact, that was an interesting sideline to the GameStop story. I, I interviewed a lot of the people who were in those Reddit groups and, you know, they have different motivations. Some of them are pretty odd, um, but a, a consistent theme was, you know, we know we're being screwed. We know that th those guys are not playing by the rules, that the game is kind of rigged in their favor. And now um, we have we have the tools online now to do the same things that they're doing, um, and we're going to do that because because we can educate ourselves now. So um, you know, again, that's not that's not quite to your question, but I, th I just think it's an interesting development that uh, people out there they do recognize that they there is a need to to um, to learn the language. I agreed. And actually, I do think it is important. I think that, that there, are in, there is an increasing solution set that is beginning to empower uh, the, the small folks here. Um, and GameStop is a, a really good example of how they can collectively band together 
to actually become a big player at the table, right? Mm -hmm. And we can debate whether that's the best use of that collective action right. or not. Yeah, exactly. it's, one of, yeah. it's one of the first times I've really been able to do that, right? Um, but anyways, yeah, so I think we, you know, both in violent agreement that the anything that advances the democratization of financial literacy and kind of, you know, removes the the curtain, um, you know, from from the man running the pulling levers behind it, so everybody can see what he's doing, uh, is helpful. And, and you, you've been great. I mean, you, you've really been one of the, the pioneers in doing this, at least in kind of the, for the recent generation. Um, so, a, I want to congratulate you for that. And, and b, just sort of ask. Um, sounds like maybe you are, you said, beginning to get get back into these waters of of, of the writing on the, the financial system. Um, are, are there any other voices? Um, out there right now that you think um, are, you know, we have an audience, I think that's really attuned to this type of material that aren't getting the attention they deserve right now, just just other people who are doing good work that, that you know, some of our viewers might be interested in? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, who are some of the reporters that are like, I would say like, you know, Gretchen Morganson, who used to work at the New York Times, um, you know, she's not there anymore, but she's 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 still doing uh, excellent work. She is, she's uh, at NBC. And by, by the way, I actually tried yeah. to get her to I, I tried to get this to be a dual interview between. Oh, you and really? She. <laughs> and she was she was very honored to be asked. She She's restricted by the policies at NBC right now. Um, but but she's great. She's great. Know, uh, but uh, as you'll notice, um, she, she's a very aggressive reporter uh, on this stuff. And uh it, that doesn't always end up being a great career move uh, for people yeah. who are in the financial services, who are covering financial services. They they want you to be like Andrew Ross Sorkin, like that. That's the kind of person who rises in financial journalism, who who kind of you know presents things from the perspective of of the banks. Uh, if you're doing it the other way, which I think is what she does, and and there are other people who do who do that kind of work. Um, you know, another person who I like is um, David Dayan of the American Prospect. Now, he's not a classically a finance person, but he was really good uh, on foreclosure, on uh, mortgage securitization. Like, they're, they're, increasingly, there they're are kind of traditional investigative reporters who are, who are not finance reporters, but they're wandering into areas uh, of, uh, of journalism that... Um, that, you know they're recognizing that finance is, is is a place that they need to be like in, in the old days uh reporters an investigative reporter just wouldn't go near uh finance they would leave that to you know the financial desk um and that's and, and again they were they were writing for a financial audience that isn't true anymore like i think there, there's more investigative reporting that 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 goes on um in, in that that's a, that's adversarial and uh, and challenging. I mean, I look at the Financial Times, um, just did terrific work on the Greensill story for over a year, and and they they were really the people who kind of uncovered a lot of the 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 mess there, and that might not have happened, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So I'm I'm, I'm encouraged by that for sure. All right, good. And look, um, when we talked six months ago, we kind of went in, in depth into your move to Substack. But um, you know, you, you've moved to a more independent platform. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the voices that you like, and, and as you said, you know, sometimes if you're in a conventional media company, 
it can be a little career limiting, um, you know, to, to, to really be kind of a no holds barred critic of, of the financial system. Um, but more and more of these people, I think, are, are moving to some of these new solutions. Um, so I guess my question is, is what, what can we as the audience here do to support the kind of unbiased, investigative, fearless journalism that we'd like to see more of? Yeah, uh, well, I would hope that people would would find, um, you know, a lot, a lot of these new investigative independent reporters, they're in kind of subscription based um setups so go, go go and support them go subscribe give them the capital to succeed yeah right and and you know one of the things that i found that i haven't quite solved yet is that the, the the content that brings in the most subscribers tends to be like the kind of op-ed um opinion pieces that that are kind of viral that that are hot on twitter and so you have to write some of that the stuff that doesn't bring in quite as many people is, you know, involves research and time and reporting. So there's a bit of a tension there because we want to deliver the good product to you, which would, but, but in order to do that, you're, you're just going to see less content. Um, and so I think there has to be a little bit of an understanding between um, audiences and uh, and these new independent reporters that, the, the, look, the trade-off is when you're supporting independent journalism, you might not get something every day or, or you know, every two or three days. You, you might have to wait a, a week or two weeks to get that story that that's really important to you. Um, you know, that's a habit I think that the, the audiences haven't gotten into yet. Um, and also, you know, those of us who are in independent journalism, we're still kind of finding our way and in terms of what the right uh, amount of attention and time we should be spending on certain kinds of stories is. Um, but yeah, that's certainly a factor. I think, you know, the, 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 what we haven't solved yet is how do we pay for long form, like in-depth investigative journalism, because that's, that's the thing that takes the longest time, amount of time and is hardest to, mo to monetize. Yeah, that totally makes sense. You know, to me, it sounds similar to kind of the rise of the organic food movement, where you had to tell people basically, look, it's going to be more expensive <laughs> and you're going to have less supply, at least initially. Um, mm -hmm. But it's all for a good reason. And if you support these, you know, organic farmers, uh, you'll be building an ecosystem that brings the world closer to where you want it to be. And I think we kind of need to have the same approach with with journalism, right, which is quality independent journalism. A, it's going to be more expensive uh then you know all the free content you get in your social media news feed and it might be more costly too in the sense that you gotta maybe wait for it it's not just going to be instant gratification every day but the more of those solutions that we support that ecosystem grows and more content gets out there and hopefully eventually it gets uh you know better and better um you don't have to agree with that that analogy no you're, how you're, i think about I, it I, I think you're right uh uh, also, I think it's important for people to remember that all that free content, it's not really free. Uh, it, you know, you are, you are in one way or another paying for all of it, um, usually in the form of higher prices for the products that are advertising somewhere, uh, you know, whether it's on that site or on Facebook or wherever. Um, whatever you're seeing for free, you're paying for it one way or the other. So, uh, you know, you might as well pay directly and have have some control over, uh, you know, the quality of it, at least. Exactly. You know, to beat my my food analogy dead, um, 
you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of cheap fast food is, is very unnutritious. You're, you're paying for it in, in poor quality of what you're eating. It might not exactly you know, use the information analogy. The information might, might not be very nutritious, uh, but it might not even be very accurate. Right. <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah. So there's all sorts of costs in that system. All right, Matt Willock, as we wrap up here, thank, <clears throat> thank you for taking the time to give again, just a wonderful, uh, discussion and, and sharing all your, your insider, uh, insights from, from the world of media. Um, for people that uh, have really enjoyed this conversation, you know, I, I think you're a well-known personality to most people, but for folks that want to learn more about your work, um, perhaps support you specifically, where should they go? My site is uh, taibi.substack.com. And um, I have a podcast that's called Useful Idiots. And uh, you can find my books on Amazon. Um, so yeah, but uh, definitely just go, go, go to the Substack. Uh, and I'm, I, I do put out a lot of content. I try to get something up there, you know, at least twice a week. So uh, I would love it if you came and visit. Um, and there's, and there's, there's increasingly a lot of finance stuff on there. So uh, if you're interested in that, there's, there's going to be a lot of content. Great. And actually, Matt, can you mention your Twitter handle as well? Because I do follow oh, you sure. on Twitter and, and you do post there a lot. I mean, multiple times a day. I do. Yeah, uh, it's uh, at M-T-A-I-B-B-I. So that's M-T-A-I-B-B-I. And um, yeah, I'm not Glenn Greenwald out there uh, every every uh, 10 minutes uh, posting or, or less, but I, I, I try to stay in touch at least a little bit. Excellent. All right, Matt. Well, look, um, best of luck in continuing to be out there fighting the good fight. And thanks so much again for coming on today. Adam, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion with independent financial journalist Matt Tyvey. I must say, I am really pleased with the high quality of experts that we've been able to persuade to come on this program so far. It's really amazing that at only three months old, this Wealthy on Channel has already had money and market experts like James Grant, Lacey Hunt, Jim Rogers, Robert Cialdini, Lynn Alden, David Stockman, and Stephanie Pomboy agree to appear on it. So if you'd like to see more top experts in their field, like Matt and the other folks I just mentioned, here's how you can help. The more subscribers this channel has, and the more views that these videos get, the more interested the really big names are in agreeing to come on this program. So if you haven't yet, please take a moment to subscribe to this channel by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And then once you've done that, take a few seconds to share this video with at least three people in your life who you think will find value in it. Those two steps, while they may seem small to you, they really do add up to have a material positive impact if enough of the thousands of you watching this video take these quick steps. So please just take a couple of seconds to subscribe and share if you want to see even bigger names on this program in the future. And if Matt's warnings about the similarities that he's seeing between today and 2008 have caught your attention, use that as a nudge from the universe to get your financial affairs into a good place. And if you'd appreciate a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who takes into consideration the systemic risks that Matt mentioned on the program today, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Thanks for watching. Thank you.